You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you as you find your seat to find Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. And today is, of course, Palm Sunday. Uh, We talk about Palm Sunday a lot, and perhaps um, we have not spent enough time on considering its significance in the life of Israel or even in our lives as Christians here in uh, this day and age. So, Zephaniah uh, or rather, Zechariah is where we find uh, the prophecy of this particular uh, moment in the life of Christ in his um, final week of life as we prepare for Easter. So if you're struggling to find it, if you just find Matthew and you just turn back two books, it's the second to last book in the Old Testament. It's one of three post-exilic books or post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Uh, That is, after the nation of Israel was led into captivity because of God's judgment against them, because of their sin and rebellion against him. And so Zechariah chapter 9 is the heart of that story. So why this book on Palm Sunday? Well, Palm Sunday is the celebration, if you are unfamiliar, of Jesus' triumphal entry, as it's been called, into the city of Jerusalem there on the last week of his life uh, as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the promised King of Israel who would come and restore his people, restore the kingdom to Israel, and ultimately sit on the throne as the King of Kings And the king of this nation. That promise is found in the book of Zechariah. And they cry out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the word Hosanna is both a cry of praise and a cry for help. It literally means save us. And it is exactly what Jesus has come to do, to save sinners from an eternal hell and separation from God. The hope of God's fulfilled promise there in Jerusalem. That's why this particular book on Palm Sunday. It's very easy for us as we consider God's promises as his people to become discouraged And deflated whenever we find ourselves waiting for promises that seem so distant and so delayed. It's exactly where the people of God find themselves in this book. And it is my prayer for us today that we would be encouraged by the certain fulfillment of God's promises 2,000 years ago. And be filled with hope for the reality that God still fulfills his promises today and that God will fulfill his promises in the future. So I ask you this question. What if Palm Sunday is not about an event that occurred 2000 years ago only? What if the promise of God remains partially unfulfilled and there is still something to come regarding Palm Sunday? In other words, what if Palm Sunday every year is not just a reminder of the certainty of God's promises fulfilled in the past, but the hope of God fulfilling his promises in the future? Here's my message to you this morning. 
Your king is still coming to you and the promised salvation of God is still true. Your king is still coming to you and the promised salvation of God is still true. But I want you to see that in the text. So we're going to read uh, this Palm Sunday prophecy. But what I want you to see is how God has fulfilled most of this prophecy. And perhaps there is something still to come. If you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Zechariah chapter nine. Beginning with verse 9. The Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have met Ephraim, its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour And tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness! And how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Father, I pray that as we open your word once again this morning to look to this good news that the king is coming to us. I pray that we would be filled with great faith. Remembering that you, Jesus, have fulfilled the promise of the Old Testament to enter into the city gates on a donkey. And Hosanna is true. You have come to save us. May we cry out with the crowds this morning, Hosanna to God in the highest. May we cry out, blessed is he who's come in the name of the Lord. And yet I pray that you would stir in us great hope. That this promise, although fulfilled by you, Jesus, has not reached its fullness. And God, may we be filled with great hope of your promises to be fulfilled in the future. May it stir us to live for you now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So before we dive into the text, I want to give you just kind of a disclaimer up front. Um, My goal this morning is to give you a 30,000 foot view of this prophet and what he had to say to God's people. And so there is a message in this text, in this book, really, that if we look at the small details and just focus on all of those small details that we are liable to. To actually miss, we, we might miss the forest for the trees as the saying goes. And there's a place for that, by the way. We do need to look at word by word, phrase by phrase, understanding of God's word. The details matter because God has inspired every single word of his word. Amen. 
And so we profit on every single word and live by every single word. And yet there are meta narratives. There are threads that run throughout Scripture that we must see if we're to understand the details rightly. So two things. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. Don't let that scare you, I hope. Uh, we will not miss lunch uh, today, but we're going to try to do our best to cover Zechariah 9 through 14 specifically, really all of this book. And I know that sounds daunting, but hang with me all the way to the end because you, you don't want to miss what this prophecy tells us. And so that's number one. Number two, we're going to cover... Not a lot of details here, so we're going to miss some things, and I don't want you to feel slighted. There are parts of this text that we just don't have time to deal with if we're going to see the big picture. Maybe we'll come back in the days ahead and see the smaller details, and I would encourage you to do that as well. But I want us to see the big picture. So Zechariah is speaking to a discouraged people. That's the first thing you should note about this book was written about 520 B.C. as it was spoken to the nation. That's nearly 20 years after returning from exile. The nation was in exile, conquered in 586 B.C., led away into captivity by Babylon under the hand of God. Israel had rebelled against him, and so this was his judgment against them because of their sin. Make no mistake about it that God does judge sin. They were released then from exile by God's grace. The same hand that led them into captivity led them out of captivity and they returned to the land. The land was in complete ruins. By the time of Zechariah's ministry, the foundation of the temple had been laid, but even the temple remained unfinished because the nation saw the enemies around them and they failed to restore the priority of worship among them. So two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, contemporaries of one another, together exhort the people to rebuild the temple and to look again to the fulfillment of God's promises. You see, decades before, just before the nation was conquered and taken into exile, 70 years, Jeremiah said, you would remain in captivity. Seventy years the nation would be destroyed. But after 70 years, God would renew His presence among the people. He would restore the temple that had been destroyed. He would establish His kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. That's the promise that these people have been hoping for for 70 years. Well, now the 70 years is almost up. Israel had waited all this time and things around them, even though God had made the promise, things around them looked pretty bleak. The world was still a mess. The people of God were still in ruins. He had promised a new and better covenant, but the covenant had not yet come. The promise of God was still yet unfulfilled. And so in chapters 7 and 8 of Zechariah, they show their discouragement. Asking, is is it ever going to happen? Is the time now? Have you ever been discouraged because the promises of God seem distant And delayed? Have you ever hoped for the soon return of Christ as God's word promises? And yet it seems year after year to remain unfulfilled? The world around us as we live today also looks bleak, doesn't it? It seems broken. Even this week as we think about our own children and a precious church serving their children well in Christian education, entered by a mass shooter and wreaking havoc. That's just one report. It happens all around us. People receiving the news of cancer with very little hope of healing. People 
in conflict in their families with very little hope seemingly of restored relationships. Churches divided and closing their doors. Isn't it easy? Isn't it easy for us to look around us and to say, where's the hope, God? Where's the promise? You said it's coming. And church, if we're not careful, just before the 70 year mark, we give up hope. And Zechariah is reminding the people, hope is still coming. In fact, Yahweh remembers is the meaning of Zechariah's name. Remember the promise of the Lord. Furthermore, like Israel, it's easy for us to become distracted whenever promises are delayed. We become distracted from the will of God and the kind of world that seems like God is absent. Sometimes we take matters into our own hands and we try to work out all of the problems that we see in the world without consulting the one who is sovereign over all. Other times we just simply stop being faithful to his word because the urgency of the moment doesn't seem to be there. And yet Zechariah has a message for the people and for us. Don't be discouraged. He says, chapter 9 and verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. You know, it's okay to shout in church every now and then. I know you all are Southern Baptists, but it's good. It's good to shout. Because God is doing something. Amen. God is doing something. And you may not see it in the present, but He says, Behold, your King is coming to you and righteousness and salvation is his. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus has come and is coming. The message is your king is coming to you. That's the hope of Zechariah and the hope of Palm Sunday. He calls the people to turn back to God. Don't turn away from God like the people that came before you, your ancestors did, you stay faithful. Even though the timing of God's promise is delayed and seems distant, know that His purposes are good. That He will remain faithful and you remain faithful to Him. That's Zechariah's message. The first part of the prophecy, chapters 1-6, through six, are kind of weird if you read them. We're not going to take the time to do that this morning, but they are visions of Zechariah, dreams. If you unpack them and you begin to see the significance of them, there are all kinds of profound meanings, but just the two middle ones. There's two things that you may be familiar with. One, the vision of Joshua, the high priest and his Clothes, his dirty clothes that he was wearing, symbolizing the bearing of Israel's sin and then removing of those garments and putting on new garments as a picture of taking away the sin of Israel. The second middle vision, the vision of both Joshua and Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel being the the heir of David. And the message to these two men is if you're going to be effective in your leadership of Israel, then you must understand yourselves as the anointed men of God, 100% dependent upon his spirit. At the end of this section of dreams, Zechariah is asked by some of his Uh, Those listening to his prophecy, is that time now? Are you going to restore the kingdom and worship to Israel now? Prophecy reminds them that they must be faithful to God's covenant. But the question, will you restore the kingdom of God now, remains unanswered. Remains unanswered. We're left hanging. The, the faithfulness to God's covenant and whether that would actually happen remains unanswered. And so what that does is set the stage then for chapter 9. And Zechariah begins to walk through promises of this king who is coming. 
the one who enters into Jerusalem. And so what we need to do is walk through these five chapters with the New Testament in our hand, because if we read this passage, we come to it with an advantage that Israel did not yet have. We have the New Testament. We know the one who is coming and the king who is coming in Zechariah chapter nine is none other than Jesus who entered in to Jerusalem gates on the day or rather the week before he died. And the hope of Israel is in him and our hope is found in him. So there are four promises that find their counterpart in the New Testament that I want you to see. And when we get to the final one, you might be surprised as to what we find. Zechariah chapter nine, beginning in verse nine, the promise is, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey here's the promise the king is coming to bring righteousness and salvation the king is coming to bring righteousness and salvation you see those two things there king is coming to you righteousness and having salvation is he the description is that the king who is coming is righteous. He embodies righteousness and he comes bringing salvation. He's bringing righteousness and salvation with him. The reason why this is so incredibly important is because in the day it was an unrighteous people, a people who knew what it meant to rebel against God and to spend their days in under the judgment of God. They needed a king who was righteous, who would lead them in the way of righteousness. And they needed a king who was salvation. They saw that their lives were in ruin. They needed someone to rescue them, to save them. And this is why they would cry, Hosanna. This is why they would understand he is the one who came to save them. How would he do so? Verse 10 says that he would speak peace To the nations, a nation who is at war with God would know peace with God and not just the nation of Israel, but all nations would have the opportunity to know peace with God. His reign would extend beyond Israel. It would it would extend to all nations. It says that his rule would be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 11 says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is not going to be a covenant written on tablets of stone. This is going to be a a covenant set in place by the very blood of this king. Verse 12, today I declare that I will restore to you double, more than they could ever hope or imagine This covenant would come, this king would come, and he would bring salvation completely. Something that they could never provide themselves, this double portion. Skipping down to verse 16, on that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. How great For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. There is no mistaking it that it would be God who ultimately would save. The righteousness that they weren't. The salvation that they so desperately needed. The king that God had promised. He was bringing these things. And he would come riding into a new Jerusalem. After exile, rebuilt on the back of a donkey. (laughs) So it should not come as a surprise to us when we get to John chapter 12. And we're reading about the one who has promised to be the Messiah. The one who has said, I am your king. I am your savior. It should be no surprise Whenever we read in chapter John, chapter 12 and verse 12, the next day, 
the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And what did they cry? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And the Bible tells us that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And then is quoted from Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. If you read Matthew's account, which gives us an incredibly clear picture of Jesus as king, You'll find that Jesus actually commanded his disciples to go and get the donkey and bring it to him. This was all under the sovereign reign of Jesus to fulfill prophecy and to demonstrate that he, in fact, was the righteous king who brings salvation. You can also look at Mark 11 and Luke chapter 19 for that same story. You see, the king has come to bring righteousness and salvation to all people. He, living a perfect, sinless life, being a righteous king unlike the other kings that led Israel ultimately into ruin, King Jesus led them to salvation. And that salvation is not just to them, but to all people who would call on the name of the Lord. He is the righteous king who brings salvation. How does he do that? Well, there's a second promise here in Zechariah. As you look at chapter 10 and 11, the king is coming to bear the sin of his people. The king is coming to bear the sin of his people. So the king is... A king in chapter 9, but it picks up a new image in chapter 10. He's portrayed, described as a shepherd. This shepherd king. Chapter 10, look at the middle of verse 2. Therefore, the people wandered like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds. So the leaders of the nation are portrayed as shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. So he's describing two things happening. The people have wandered, the leaders have wandered. They have ineffective shepherds, and they are wandering rebellious sheep. When you get over into chapter 11, verse 7, notice who becomes the shepherd. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. New image that's come. These shepherds are not leading the people well. The sheep are ultimately doomed to wander and they are like sheep being led away to the slaughter. So a new shepherd takes up the mantle of leading the flock, leading them ultimately out of the slaughter. And in one month, verse eight says, I destroyed the three shepherds. These are the nation's. But I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. Later, the shepherd is stricken for the sake of the people. This perfect shepherd who's come to lead the perfect shepherd whom Israel rejected, the perfect shepherd who no one followed ultimately until after his death. This is the shepherd of Israel. This is the king who has come to bear the sins of his people. And the one who is the one who is ultimately stricken was led away for the slaughter in place of the slaughter of the people. There is a picture here of the 30 pieces of silver that are being offered up for the life of the shepherd. Verse 12, then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter.
What's the picture? Oh, the picture of the shepherd and his sheep and the massive betrayal that took place against the shepherd to betray him for a measly wage, a wage which the shepherd ultimately rejects because there is no wage that can satisfy the shepherd's worth. When we get into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 3, the story then becomes familiar. When Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, the one whom he had traded for a measly 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He recognizes the worth of Jesus and tragically he throws down the 30 pieces of silver in regret, in shame, and goes and commits suicide. Jesus, the one who is the great shepherd, betrayed for a measly wage. He is the one who is the true light, who gives light coming to everyone coming into the world, John says, but he was rejected by them. The world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The very crowds that came to worship Jesus at one time come now to say, crucify him. And it's not just the crowds around him. Isaiah 53 says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, we are the ones who've sinned against Christ. And Jesus is the one who bears that sin. Not by saying, give it to them, just let it die, but let me die. John 10 says that He is the Good Shepherd. That He knows us. And that we know Him. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Praise God. He did not give up on his sheep. He laid down his life. And he didn't. He, he took on himself the infinite penalty of our sin. He bore it on himself so that the infinite worth of Christ might be made manifest so that the infinite worth of God might be vindicated and so that our sins could be forgiven. He bore our sin on Himself. The King is coming to bear the sins of His people. So third promise here. The King is coming to forgive and to restore sinners. The King is coming to forgive and to restore Sinners, chapter 12, and I will pour out on the house. This is verse 10, chapter 12 and verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, when they look on the shepherd, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There will be some sense in which there is recognition of sin, conviction of sin that is coming. Verse 11 says that on that day the morning of Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall Mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house. Every single person, he's saying, is going to mourn their sin. But, chapter 13 and verse 1, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. 
This is what the king is bringing. The king who is righteous, who is bringing salvation, is making a way by dying for the sheep in order that their sins might be forgiven. And Zechariah says, when that day comes, there will be a fountain opened of forgiveness from sin and uncleanness. It will be opened and it will flow forth. And he says, on that day, verse 2, Declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that there, so that they shall be remembered no more. And he goes on describing how he will completely expunge idolatry from the land. Every false god will be cut low and the only one true God will be lifted high through this king. And so the prophet says in verse seven, awake, O sword against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. He says, let it come. Oh, if this is what the king brings with him, let him die. Let him die so that we might be saved and live. Promises kept then. Mark chapter 14, when they had sung a hymn, this is the the disciples in the upper room, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will fall away. By the way, after he's already entered in Jerusalem and they've met together and they're at the looming hour of his crucifixion, he says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Despite Peter's prideful self-reliance, there was only one way that they could be saved. Only one way that the sheep could know the forgiveness of sins, and that would be through the death of the shepherd. And when Jesus went to the cross... The blood that poured forth from his wounds was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And in his blood, there is forgiveness of sins. Without his blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And we are fully cleansed by trusting in him and him alone. As an aside, perhaps, Acts chapter 2, which will be in next week, Easter Sunday morning. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And the Jews who crucified Jesus are standing around. And as if they are speaking through tears, they say, brothers, what shall we do? You see, all the nations wept because of their own sin And their need for Christ. Praise God that in the blood of Jesus there is complete and total forgiveness of all of our sins for all who trust in Christ. It's a promise made and a promise kept. There's one more promise here. And it's a promise that kind of builds as you move toward the end of Zechariah. Chapter 12, chapter 14, you begin to put the pieces together. I just want to highlight it for you so you see the picture. It's a promise that is made that is yet unkept. It's a promise that is made that is yet distant or delayed. Chapter 12 and verse 10 says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. Please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, 
They shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn or over a firstborn. There is a sense in which that's happened. There is a sense in which that continues to happen as sinners come under conviction of the Holy Spirit and realize their need for a Savior and begin to weep over their sin. And God in His rich mercy meets a sinner at that place and gives them joy, fullness of joy, abundant joy because their sins have been forgiven and they've been saved. That has happened for 2,000 years since the coming of Christ and yet it has not happened in its fullness. This is the very passage that John quotes in Revelation chapter 1. It's leaning into the final days of the world. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion Forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Amen, church. And every eye will see him. Even those, listen, who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. The promise of the wailing of the nations is still to come. All of those who ultimately have rejected Jesus will wail in their rebellion and in their rejection of Him and under His judgment, and yet the people of God will rejoice eternally. Why? Because He is coming to establish His eternal reign. He's coming to establish His reign as King of Kings, not the one who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, but the one who returns to the earth on a stallion. Not the one who comes speaking peace, but the one who comes wielding a sword, which is his word. Not the one who comes to restore, but the one who comes to judge. The one who comes to make righteous all things. To put every enemy under his feet. To vindicate the holiness and the glory of his name. That is the one who is coming. Zechariah is the prophecy of that one. You skip down to chapter 14 and verse 1, we get a picture of that day. Before John ever tells of it from his vision, behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. It's a picture of the division of those who are following the king and those who are not. And this graphic, destructive image against all of those who reject the king. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split into two, east to the west, by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azale. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. King of Judah, the same moment of exile. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost on that uh, rather. And there shall be a unique day. Which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but in evening time, there shall be light and listen to what is coming on that day. Living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. 
Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in the summer as in the winter and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. Revelation chapter 22, the new Jerusalem. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb of God will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and there will be no need of light, lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. John said that we will be his people and he will be our God. See, church, the, the reign of Christ that was declared from a donkey on the streets of an earthly Jerusalem will be made full when Jesus is the light of the new heavenly Jerusalem. And we can believe that promise because 2,000 years ago, Jesus fulfilled His promise to come as a king offering peace and grace and mercy as he rode on the back of the donkey and as he extended his arms to give his life for us. The simple message of Zechariah is your king is still coming to you and the promised salvation of God is still true. Some of you here this morning the promises of God, the goodness of God, the answers that you've been praying for, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, all of those things seem distant and delayed. And God seemingly is distant and absent and silent and you just don't know how to make sense of the world or your life. But I want to I tell you this morning on the authority of God's word that your king is still coming to you. And he's coming on the clouds. And he came and he gave his life in order that you might have a place on that day. Rejoice, believer. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. Rejoice in the fact that when he comes, you will be with him and be patient. Wait on him, serve him, be faithful this day, knowing that he is faithful to you. You may be here this morning and you would not profess to be a follower of Jesus today. Or maybe you have some cultural view of what that looks like, but you've never turned from your sins. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've never believed the gospel. You've never been born again. Friend, just as sure as Jesus lived and died and rose again, just as sure as he rode in on that donkey that day, he will come again. And when he does, he will divide his church from all of the rest. And the only hope you have of eternal life and being spared from eternal judgment is putting your faith and trust in his shed blood for you. It's the only hope. Would you do that today? Would you not delay another day, but put your faith and trust in Messiah, King Jesus, the one who is the promised king of Zechariah and be saved? So with every head bowed, every eye closed, Zechariah's message is simple and plain to us this morning. He's coming. He's coming. Your king is coming to you. Today, turn and follow Jesus. Follow this king. 
So some of you this morning, you just need to come to this altar and spend some time on your face before him. Trusting him once again. Recommitting faith and trust to him. Maybe some of you, you've spent your life wandering lately. In lesser things and today you need to cry out Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your worship today needs to be restored. Maybe that's just simply through your heart pouring out to a holy God who loves you and gave himself for you. Maybe that's through some act of obedience. Maybe that directly impacts the way that you serve today. The way that you share the gospel with your neighbor today. The way that you give today. The, the, the number of times that you spend in his word each week today. I don't know. But today you need to be more faithful to him. Maybe there's someone in this room who's never trusted in Jesus. Here's what I want to ask you to do. In just a moment, when we stand all across this room and sing, right where you're standing, would you walk out of that aisle? Would you step out of that place and walk down front? Say to me, Pastor, today I need to be saved. And Jesus will save you. I'll lead you to Him. And He'll show you what to do. You turn from sin and you follow Him. And He will guide every step. If you'll be faithful today and follow him. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you to stand with me all across the room as I begin to pray. When I say amen, this altar is open. You come this morning. Lord Jesus, you are king. King of kings, Lord of lords, Hosanna in the highest. The one who comes in the name of the Lord, God in human flesh. The one who's come to save us from our sins. We give our lives to you today. Pray that you would make that true of every heart in this room. And that you would move us to obedience and faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning as we sing. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www southwidebaptist.com We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.